please take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 7 through 18. As we come to meditate upon uh, the great work, not only of the officers, but also the great work that the people of God have toward their officers. This passage in Hebrews chapter 13 uh, beautifully sets forth uh, both of those visions. Here we come in Hebrews 13, beginning with verse 7. The author to the Hebrews writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we thank you for the privilege of sitting at your feet, of hearing from you, our Father, from you, King Jesus, our great prophet, from you, Holy Spirit, who has inspired this word. We pray that you would speak it deep into our hearts. May it bear much fruit for your glory, for the good of the church, for the salvation of the lost. Lord, even for the joy of those who are ordained this evening and installed as elders and deacons. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite job descriptions for those who are engaged in ministry, particularly in official ministry in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, when Paul writes these words, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. Workers for your joy. That is what all of our teaching elders, all of our ruling elders, all of our deacons are called to be. To be workers with you, the congregation of Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church, for your joy. As we labor in our respective callings, as shepherds and as servants of the flock, our aim is a deep-seated joy in the Lord that permeates your entire life. Right? So that no matter what circumstances you find yourselves in, you have a strength and a peace in the Lord that enables you to press on 
This joy is our goal. It is our desire for you. But as we see in Hebrews 13 this evening, this pursuit of joy actually goes both ways, doesn't it? This letter was written to a church of primarily Hebrew or Jewish Christians. And this last section of the letter concludes practical exhortations that began in chapter 12. The author is saying, look, in light of everything that I have said in the preceding chapters about the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the old covenant ceremonies and sacrifices and all of the ceremonial system, here is how you are to live. And so he comes to these final Verses And in verse 17, the author tells believers that their leaders are over them in the Lord and that they are called to obey and submit to those leaders. For those leaders are keeping watch over their souls as those who will give an account. And then he says this, let them do this with joy. Let them do this with joy. Just as the leaders of the church are to work for the joy of the saints, so the saints are to work for the joy of their leaders. And of course, as the author says, this only boomerangs back to the saints, right? For if the leaders do their work joylessly, grudgingly, and with groaning, and in reluctance and resistance, then as the author tells us, that would be of no advantage to you. And so tonight, from our text, I want to show you four ways that you can help your officers labor with joy. And then I want to remind you who are officers of two things about your calling from this passage. So first, how can you help your officers to labor with joy? Four ways we see in the text. First, submit. Second, imitate. Third, sacrifice. And fourth, pray. Where do we see that in the text? Well, first, submit. Verse 17 The author tells believers that in order to let your leaders do their work with joy, you must obey and submit to them. Now, from the the functions that he gives us there in verse 17 as well as verse 7, the leaders here appear primarily to be elders, right? They are speaking the word of God to them. They're keeping watch of the souls of the saints. But this term leader was used of anyone in an official leadership capacity, whether in politics or in the military or in religion. And and as deacons also exercise an authoritative service in the church, the the PCA, uh, PCA congregations, as you will do soon, take vows to obey deacons as well as elders. And so I'm going to take this as referring to, to all of our leaders, the two offices of elder and deacon. And it's clear, isn't it, as we read the Bible, that, that part of what it means to obey God's law, to submit to the, the, the rule and the reign of King Jesus, is to honor and to submit to those who he has placed in authority over us, whether in the family or in the state or in the church. Right? Now, To be sure, 1 Peter 5, 3, Jesus and the Gospels make very clear that leaders are not to lord it over the flock. They're not to act domineering toward the flock. Indeed, this word for obey has the sense of following someone because you have been won over as a result of persuasion. Whether you're in perfect agreement with your leaders or not, God has put those leaders in charge of the church. Elders have been put ultimately over the whole church under Christ the head. Deacons have been specifically put over the the, the areas of mercy ministry and the the temporal, this worldly aspects of financial and property management. 
Right? Obeying and submitting that means, first of all, heeding the word of God that comes from their mouth. We, we see the divine commandments, don't we, at the beginning of chapter 13, uh, related to, to brotherly love, to hospitality, uh, to marriage, to financial contentment. But obey, obedience and submission also mean acquiescing to decisions that, that do not have a thus saith the Lord. A, a, a proof text that we could point to and say, here's why we're doing what we're doing. Those decisions that are based on godly wisdom, on sound deliberation. Things like what times do we gather for corporate worship? How is money spent? What are the policies for the use of church property? What are the specific ministries that we will engage in? Now, to be sure, if you believe that the decisions being made by the officers here are contrary to the scriptures, right, you have the freedom right, to transfer your obedience and submission to other leaders. Right? But until you do that, if you are a member of this congregation, you have taken vows to submit to the authority of this set of officers. It's never easy to be an officer in the church, but when the sheep are, are bucking against their shepherds and servants, when they're rowing in the opposite direction of their leaders, when they're pushing back or just ignoring lawful exhortations, the work is all the harder, all the more joy-destroying. When the sheep are being recalcitrant and obstinate and stubborn, certainly the duties of the officers don't stop, although they do change, but it's far more pleasant for your elders, for your deacons, to serve as officers when the sheep are striving to obey and to submit to their leaders. So that's the first way that you can help your leaders to obey, to, to, to serve and labor with joy, is to submit to them, says the Lord. But secondly, to imitate them. Go back to verse 7. In verse 7, the author calls on the church to remember her leaders to consider and to give careful thought to the outcome of their way of life, to imitate their faith. When you do this, when you imitate your leaders as they imitate Christ, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 11.1, then your leaders will see that the word of, of God that they are speaking is being heeded. It's being listened to. It's being acted upon. The examples that they are seeking to set are being followed, and their hearts will fill with joy. Notice, though, that immediately after saying what he says in verse 7, he writes these words, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Why does he say that in the context of verse seven? Well, I think part of the reason is he wants to remind you, the church, that, that though your leaders are to be followed and imitated, they are not to be put in the place of Jesus, all right? Leaders are finite. They come and they go. But our ever-living, our never-leaving Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, he is with us even when human leaders are taken from us. But verse 8 also points us to the, the heart of the gospel faith that, that, that we are called to imitate, right? We're called to imitate the faith of our leaders. Well, what is the content of that faith? It is Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is Jesus who is utterly trustworthy. It is the grace of God as he speaks in the next verse. Right? That grace that manifests itself so clearly in Jesus' death on the cross for our salvation. 
In verse 9, he, he goes on to tell them not to be led away to, by diverse and strange teachings. He's referring specifically to the, the temptation to go back to Jewish ceremonies, back to sacrifices, right? back to the, all the fellowship meals that would have been involved in the Jewish system that would have been touted as, as the true means of spiritual nourishment. But he tells us it's grace that strengthens the heart. It's grace that strengthens the heart, not the eating of animal sacrifices. It's grace. The grace found in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what he means by we have an altar. That is, we have the cross. We have the cross of our Savior on which Jesus shed his blood as the, the alone sacrifice for our sins. The Jewish leaders who served the tent, as he puts it there, by participating in the animal sacrifices, they had no right to eat of Jesus' sacrifice because they were not trusting in Jesus Christ alone. They had no right to participate in the finished work of Christ because they didn't believe it. They didn't trust in it. That's the only way of forgiveness of sins. They were still relying on their own works. And so the author is saying, imitate the faith of your leaders who shunned their own works, who shunned confidence in their own works, who trusted in Christ, who sought strength in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and who walked in all of those good works that flow from saving faith. These leaders who pursued sanctification, secure in their justification in Jesus Christ, not pursuing sanctification in order to be justified, but pursuing sanctification because they were already forgiven and justified in Christ. And when you follow your leaders and imitate them, how does John put it in 3 John 4? I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the truth. Do you want to give joy to your leaders? Do you want to help them to labor with joy? Imitate them. Well, third, sacrifice. Sacrifice. The author mentions several ways that we are called to, to sacrifice in our text and enduring the reproach of this world in our worship and in our sacrificial giving. Notice in verses 11 and 12, the author refers to the old covenant day of atonement described in Leviticus 16, in which the carcasses of the bulls and the, the goat that were slain by the priests as a sin offering were to be taken outside of the camp to be burned. And, and then the author draws the connection to the fact that Jesus died outside of the camp, outside of the gate, outside of the city of Jerusalem on Golgotha. And then he makes the next connection, right? He links Jesus's suffering and sacrifice to your suffering and sacrifice, right? He says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. You hear what he's saying? You, Christian, are called to take up your cross to follow the Lord Jesus into suffering, into reproach, sacrificing ease and convenience and comfort for the sake of the gospel. And we can do that. How? Well, because as verse 14 goes on to say, here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come, the city that has foundations, whose author is builder and God. The author is saying, do you want to help your, your leaders labor with joy? then be willing to suffer for Christ. Keep that eternal perspective on your suffering before you all your days. Know that you have a city that is to come and therefore you are willing to forsake whatever the Lord might call you to forsake in this life. Your leaders will be filled with joy as they see you suffering 
for the sake of Jesus Christ. We bring our joy, we bring joy to our officers as we sacrifice not only in enduring the reproach of the world, but, but you notice also as we carry out our priestly calling to offer in worship spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We've actually just sung of it, haven't we? And glorious things of thee are spoken. Right? Continually throughout all our life, verse 15 says, especially when we gather for corporate worship. We are offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise to God from a contrite heart, a believing heart, a heart that acknowledges and confesses God's name and character. Why does he call praise and worship a sacrifice? Well, part of it, of course, is, is that you could be doing lots of other things than being here on a Sunday evening at 6 o'clock or here on a Sunday morning at 8.30 or 11. You have lots of other things you could choose to do with your time. Yet you are sacrificing your time. In some places, you are sacrificing your reputation. In some places, you are sacrificing the, the life that you have, right? You, there's a threat to your life as you gather for corporate worship to offer this sacrifice of praise. When we come to sing to the Lord, to praise him, we are offering that priestly duty. Before that audience of one, yes, we gather here together, but we're not performing for one another we are performing for the Lord, as it were. We are serving him and sacrificing to him, giving to him the glory that is due his name. And let me just tell you, as one of your elders, to see the saints gathering for worship and singing with all their hearts. There are a few things that fill my heart with more joy than to hear the praise of God's people filled this room, filling this room, filling their hearts the sacrifice of praise helps us to labor with joy. But there's one more sacrifice here, isn't there? You see it there in verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's when we do tangible good to others, when we share what we have with others. The author explicitly says they're pleasing to God, and, and by derivation, by implication, they're certainly pleasing to the officers God has called to shepherd and serve his flock as well, right? To see God's people give generously of their wealth for the sake of those in need, for the sake of the lost around the world and missions, to see you, the church, kick into action when someone is struggling and hurting, to see you live as if you really are merely a steward of the resources that God has given you. It fills the hearts of your deacons, of your elders with joy, for all the grace that God has lavished upon you, grace that you, through you, he is lavishing upon others. So we're called to submit, we're called to imitate, we're called to sacrifice, and lastly, we're called to pray. You see it there in verse 18. Pray for us, says the author. You see, when ministry is difficult, when you're weary from struggling with all the the work that it takes to, to seek and pursue the joy of the, the saints. When your leaders are ready to, to give up or to give in to self-pity or to laziness. How life-giving it is, how joy-producing it is to hear someone say to you or to receive a, 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 mail, a note in the mail or an email or a text to say, look, I'm praying for you. I know your work isn't always easy. It's not always enjoyable. I know many people don't see the things that you do to let your elders and your deacons know that you are interceding for them as priests in Jesus Christ, as you are 
going before the throne of grace boldly through Jesus Christ, your mediator. See, this author believed that prayer was effective. Why else would he ask there in verse 19 that he urges them to pray all the more earnestly in order that he might be restored to them the sooner? He believed that the prayers of the saints would be part of the means through which God would restore him to them. We don't understand all the details of that request, but they did, and he did. This author knew that prayer was the gasoline that kept the the engine of joyful labor running strongly. Brothers and sisters, how do you help your leaders labor with joy? Submit to them. Imitate them. Sacrifice to the Lord and to others and pray for them. What about you leaders? Briefly as we close, how do you serve with joy? particularly you men this evening who are being ordained and installed, two things. First, keep a clear conscience. You notice that language in verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. A clear conscience, what is that? It's a conscience informed by the word of God, a conscience that is soft to the pricks of the Holy Spirit, so that they were confident that they were doing what God had called them to do. And when they realized that they weren't doing what God had called them to do, that conscience was quick to recognize it, to ask forgiveness, to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and to repent of unfaithfulness. We need to keep a clear conscience, brothers. Keep a clear conscience, both in regard to our official duties and regard to our faith in life. Our official duties, in verse 17, He tells us that leaders will give an account one day of how we did our work, whether that work is teaching and keeping watch alertly over the souls of our people, whether that work as deacons is called to to, to care for the physical and the spiritual needs of the saints. This reality that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it should motivate not just officers, but every believer to make it our aim to please him. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is my aim, to please the Lord Jesus Christ, because we will all give an account before the judgment seat of Christ. But how much more, you men who are officers? James chapter 3, verse 1 puts it so clearly. Let not many of you become teachers, brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. We'll be held to a higher standard because you have known more, you've been accountable for more, you've been in positions of authority and responsibility in Christ's household. I'm certainly not trying to scare you, but I'm trying to sober you up. Based on the word of God, we're to take this calling seriously. Now, yes, to be sure, you'll have other callings. You'll have to be juggling them and and seeking wisdom. But how important it is to be examining our hearts, to be examining our calendars, to be examining our to-do list, to be sure that we're faithfully doing what God has called us to do. And what beautiful promises God gives us on that last day. 1 Peter chapter 5, when the chief shepherd appears, you elders will receive the unfading crown of glory. 1 Timothy 3, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So with regard to your duty, keep a clear conscience, but also with regard to your faith in your life. Verse 18 mentions the desire of the author to act honorably in all things. Verse 7 mentions the way of life and the faith that leaders are called to have. And so the question we must ask ourselves, elders and deacons, is are we living and trusting Christ in such a way that we can say to others, follow me as I follow Christ? 
Again, not that you're going to do that perfectly, but even in your failures, you'll be able to model repentance, to model what it looks like to trust in Jesus anew, what it looks like to, to repent and to walk in new obedience. Keep short accounts with the Lord, brothers. Keep a close and a frequent eye on your heart the way that a pilot might keep a close and frequent eye on his fuel level, his gauges, his instruments. John Flavel in his book, Keeping the Heart, put it like this. The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. We're called to keep the heart, to keep a clear conscience. But finally, brothers, know your need for prayer. In light of everything I just said to you in the first point, hopefully that sort of just goes without saying, doesn't it? Paul's question in 2 Corinthians 2 must always be at the forefront of your minds. Who is sufficient for these things? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Right? Not you, not me. No one is sufficient for these things. None of us in our own strength. And thus we must always remember that in humility, in dependence, we are desperately standing in need of prayer. Isn't it interesting that the author ask for prayer in verse 18, and he grounds that request. He says, for, pray for us, for, because we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. That's a confusing conjunction there, isn't it? For. But I think in part, he is saying this, without your prayers, our conscience cannot remain clear. Our desire to act honorably won't remain steadfast. Joy comes from a clear conscience, and a clear conscience comes from God through the prayers of the saints. And so the godly officer humbly acknowledges his desperate need for prayer. So to you, the saints of Pear Orchard, submit to your leaders, imitate them, sacrifice, and pray for them. And to you, men, elders, deacons, Keep a clear conscience in regard to your duty as elders and deacons, in regard to all that you believe and all the ways that you live, and know every moment of every day that you stand in the need of prayer. And so pray. Ask others to pray for you. And seek the face of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, hear us. How desperate we need you. Oh Lord, we thank you for your church. We thank you for these offices that you have instituted. Glorify your name and the rest of this service. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.